What's up everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tier 1 Podcast. Today on the show I'm joined by Professor Felipe, who is a second degree black belt teaching here where I'm working at Gracie Baja Bondi and he's had a really interested and uh, varied career. He's lived uh, in Brazil and obviously here in Australia and in London and spent time in America and I didn't get to speak to him as much as I would have liked to about all the things, different things he's done, and um, which is why I want to do a part two episode with him, which I'm sure I'll get to in the next few weeks at some point. But for now, enjoy this episode. If you would like to head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review. And remember, you can get the show on Spotify or my website, tenandds.com. So here's Professor Felipe. Okay, Professor Felipe, welcome to the Tier One podcast. Hello, team. Thanks for um, <laughs> thanks for uh, taking the time. I know we've been trying to do this for a little while now, so uh, it's good to finally get you and be able to pick your brain for a bit. So um, I usually start all these off by just finding out kind of where you're from in a bit more in depth, because obviously I know you're from Porto Alegre in, in Brazil originally, but I don't really know what that means, like like. Like if, uh, I don't know, if back home, if someone said they were from Manchester, I kind of understand a bit more like, ah, oh, kind of what that person's like in a, in a small sense. So what's, what's Port Alegre like, if you could describe it? Yeah, I think it. Uh, if, you, if you compare to, to England, um, Port Alegre would be like, uh, is the Manchester the second biggest city or what? Uh, I think it, well, it's one of the biggest cities. I think it might be like fourth or something behind. Yeah, Birmingham. so it's like Manchester. I think Porto Alegre is around the fourth uh, biggest city in Brazil. We have, uh, I think, Rio, São Paulo, Belo Horizonte, and then probably Porto Alegre is around the fourth, fifth. We have around two million people. Wow. Yeah, it's the capital of our state. It's a it's a big city with a small mentality. Mm. <laughs> you know. So this is why it's not really easy to leave there. Right. And uh, what did you kind of want to be when you were growing up in Port Alegre? What, what was the goal? Um, I always did martial arts and sports. So I was uh, willing to go to uni and study uh, sports coaching. But then my mom was against it. She wanted me to do something that would... Uh, uh, bring me money, right? So she convinced me to study business management instead of uh, uh, sports coaching because she said, she used to say, well, if you want to have your own gym, so you have to do business management, not sports coaching. Mm. So she kind of convinced me that way. She, she was like, uh, uh, she was uh, used to say that you have to, how is that? <clears throat> you have to have money to do something to then do something you like instead of do something you like to get money something like along the line right probably not so easy to translate it from portuguese to english <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, so is, is port allegory quite like is it quite a poor city is it an affluent city is it is there a divide between classes there or yeah like uh like most of the brazilian cities there's a big gap between classes. So we have one third of the city is uh, is like the rich part or wealthy part, right? Uh, and then 
probably two thirds of the city are like the poor parts of the city. Mm. So uh, you, we we used to live in the in the like wealthy part of the city, which is like south of the city, downtown and stuff. Uh, you don't really get to go to the other parts of the city. It's just like here, Sydney. If you live in like the eastern suburbs, you don't really go to to the west, right? So it follows the same uh, logistics. Correct. And what did your parents do when you were growing up? My mum used to be a dentist, mm. and my dad was a journalist. All right. right. Also, like being a journalist in Brazil, like. Uh, that depends, you know. You can follow different paths in mm. journalism. Uh, my uncle is a journalist as well. My my cousins are journalists. They my uncle was a, was a uh, one of the directors of a big TV channel there. Uh, my dad had his own business with my my grandpa. They had a they own newspaper. Uh, they called the. Jockerman's newspaper. Because <laughs> nice. my yeah, my grandpa was uh, quite a f- kind of famous there. Oh really? Yeah, because he was a he was a very famous uh, uh, radio commentator. Is that right, commentator? Right. Yeah. He also used to write for a uh, the biggest newspaper there. We called uh, uh, our zero mm. <laughs> in Portuguese zero water, and also he was a. Uh, he was a politician, so I remember since I was a kid, like every time I had a new girlfriend, uh, I used to go and meet their parents or family and stuff, and they go like, all oh, right, nice to meet you, what's your name then? Felipe, Felipe what, Jockman? Oh, Jockman! <laughs> and then like my surname was kind of famous in my city. Right. So, you know, oh, so what's your relation with uh, Sergio Jockman? I'm like, uh, it's it's my grandpa. Oh right. <laughs> so you know like, that's the the question I I heard the most in my life. What's your relation to Sergio Jockman? <laughs> Every now and then some people would ask me that as soon as they they got to know my son. <laughs> Which sometimes were good, sometimes were a bit annoying. <laughs> yeah. So um when you were growing up in, in Port Allegri and stuff, when was the first time you got to do some martial arts? Uh, when I was around six or seven. Oh, right, so yeah. really young. And what was that, your, you wanted to do it? Or was it your mom, your parents yeah. wanted you my to do it? My mom wanted me to do it because my mom was a dentist, right? Mm. So she didn't want me to be running around as a kid and, you know, trip and fall and break my teeth. Right. So she was like, okay, he needs to learn how to break fall. So uh, she put me in judo. Ah. So I started doing some judo classes when I was seven and, and that was the beginning. And was judo, is, was and is judo big in Brazil? Yeah, it's like, I think in any other country, you know, so I think it's the, uh, like karate, mm. used to be the two most famous martial arts, you know, yeah. to, to, to put your kids to, to train and, you know, develop discipline and respect and and breakfalls. <laughs> <laughs> Just endlessly breakfalling class for you. Don't eat those teeth, Felipe. Even I had a car accident once, like then I was older, and there was a really bad one, like wrecked my car, right? I was about eight, yeah, 18, 19. And uh, the ambulance came and took us to the hospital. Uh, I was in conscience. 
<clears throat> I woke up in the hospital and, and I remember my mom was just like always scared like in the hospital. And then the first thing she asked the nurse was, did he break his teeth? <laughs> <laughs> she really cared about them teeth. Yeah, like everything else we can fix, but not, not, <laughs> not the teeth. teeth. <laughs> right, it seemed to my work mom, out okay for you. For a great one. pair of gnashes. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your, um, your first job when you were okay, as a young man? First job. Oh, that was a long time ago, T. Um, my first job, are you counting like the same time, the, the first time I made my own money or the first time I got a proper job? <laughs> uh, first, whatever's the more interesting story, but I was going for like the first time you kind of make some money. Okay, the first time I made some money, I, uh, I was around seven and I, we had this uh, house with a big garden uh, uh, and loads of uh, fruit trees every kind of fruit tree you can imagine from mango avocado papaya tangerine uh, guava everything my mom used to to ask us <clears throat> during lunchtime what kind of juice do you guys want and I'm like ah, i want a uh, grapefruit juice so go get some grapes and then we go there and like <laughs> get the grapes and so that was amazing uh, so, and uh, we had uh, these two huge avocado trees, and then avocados were just like falling all around the, the, the garden. And I used to feel like big bags of avocado. Uh -huh. And there was like a bus stop really close to my house. So I used to, one day I had the idea of getting a small table and start selling uh, uh, avocados and, and lemon juice. Okay. So no, just like when you see, like uh, you see in the cartoons, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, just built my own like a uh, uh, stand there <laughs> with like avocados and, and lemon juice, and I was just like making some some money. People buy just because they thought I was cute. <laughs> I was a cute little boy trying to make some money. Right? <laughs> nice. So what was your actual kind of first time you started making like a wager from a proper job? Uh, my first try was uh, selling advertisement for some local, uh, like local magazine. Mm. And um, how old were you? Uh, fifteen. I think. Oh, really? Yeah. So pretty young. Yeah, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. And after that, uh, I probably had some other jobs around that till I get to uni, and then the next job I remember is uh, working in a bank as a trainee. So by the time I was already doing um, uh, business management, so I got this job in a bank really close to my house. And I remember uh, the first bank they sent me to was this bank really far from my house, like into the poor part of the city. And I had to deal with the clients and man, some like smelly clients. Jeez, that was so hard. <laughs> no, oh man, some people, even like, you know that, that, that cigarette, uh, they, when they get into your clothes and stuff, like mm -hmm. some people that really strong smell. And I had to help them in the, in the uh, how do you call the machines there? The, you know, the uh, cash machines, uh, oh, yeah. you know, to withdraw money and do any operation there. 
And I remember some people have to to hold my 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 breath to talk to them. So I go like, so you you press here, and I go like, yeah, then you keep going. Then I couldn't breathe. Then there was like one month, and then I got lucky, and then some girl that was walking close to my house, she was she lived close to this other bank, but she had no idea how terrible this bank uh, was. And then she accepted the change, you know, so she would go there and I would go. Yeah. Because there was like two buses to get there. It was really far. And then I luckily got to to swap with this girl. And after one month, she wanted to swap back. I was like, no way. And then this bank was just like two blocks from my house. Stayed there for, for a while. But, you know, a bit boring, you know, like it's a bank job. So when uh, had you already started jiu-jitsu by that point? Uh, yes, because I started jiu-jitsu when I was uh, around 14, 15. Okay. And did you carry on with the judo from when you were seven or how no, long did that No, no. Judo, I just did judo for, I don't know how many years, I can't remember, but for a few years. I can't even remember what belt I reached, but that was only for a few years, maybe until my 10. I'm not sure. Mm. But then when I was probably 12, I started doing uh, Muay Thai. So I did that for a couple of years as well, like five years. Mm -hmm. At some point I was doing uh, Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu at the same time. Did some capoeira as well. I learned that one in the streets. <laughs> he used to do that in Brazil. <laughs> and, but then I was going to some classes afterwards to uh, learn some more uh, techniques. So do you remember going to your first Jiu-Jitsu class? And that's taking yeah, a, I do. A actually, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do, because uh, I remember I saw uh, Royce Gracie fighting his first UFC, and that was 1995, yeah, I think, right? And I was already training, uh, as I said, Muay Thai and probably some other martial arts. Because I was, I was always trying some different martial arts uh, with the one I was training. So I was doing Muay Thai, and then I trained a bit of Kung Fu with Muay Thai, and then a bit of Aikido, and a bit of Capoeira, a bit of boxing as well. But like by the time Muay Thai was the main one, and then, and then. Um, uh, I saw Gracie, uh, Rice Gracie fighting with C and I was like, oh, I gotta got learn that thing, right? And then the second jiu-jitsu school in my seat had opened just like close to my school, uh, three months before that. So I walked past before, I was like, okay, so martial what, what is that jiu-jitsu? Okay, well, didn't give it too much attention. But then after I saw Rice Gracie fighting the UFC, then I was like, oh, hang on, that's, that's the martial art. They just opened a new school close to my school. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go uh, try it. Right? Mm. And I already knew some moves because I was watching the, the, the UFC, right? And I remember first time I went there, I uh, got this gear, probably my, some karate judo gear had, probably judo gear, I don't know. Had some gear, they I bought it. Can't remember. And I'm there in the change room, and there was this guy. Today he's a good friend of mine, <laughs> and he was like, you know, like all nose up, like, oh, you say you're your first class, right? I'm like, yeah, my first class. 
oh, I've been training for a while, you know, like, hey man, how, how long have you been training? Like, I think three or four months, right? And I'm like, all right, <laughs> good for you. And then I don't remember the class much, but I remember then I ended up rolling with that guy because at that time, he just rolled straight away, right? And uh, I kind of uh, passed his guard, mounted and put the hooks like Royce Grace used to do with the guys, you know, controlling the hooks yeah. on the shin. And then the guy was like, well, what's happening here? Because I knew some moves already. And then he was surprised. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's the, the thing to, the thing I remember from, from my first class. I had long hair and because I used to do all the martial arts, I remember my professor, uh, we used to have a really hard uh, uh, warm up, you know, physical training. Sometimes there would be like one hour of physical training. And then we used to do 1000 sit ups and I don't know, 500 neck exercises and stuff. And I used to do them all and I was just like studying jujitsu. And he used to call me Kabiludu, uh, it means like hairy, right? Because I had a long hair. <laughs> and he used to go, come on, everybody. Kabiludu is doing everything and you're not, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was your, uh, he was the professor then? Hmm. I had few, right? So we had uh, the two black belts. I mean, one black belt, which was Walter uh, uh, Matos. And then Zemario, which is like the famous uh, jiu-jitsu fighter. But by the time he was a brown belt, he was not even a, a black belt yet. And then we had some uh, coaches, like some blue belt coaches, which was Boxer, uh, was his nickname, and Fernandinho. Uh, that was the other two. Uh, main coaches there mm. so they used to take turns depends on on the class right and uh did you end up meeting pedro at that jiu-jitsu gym did you pedro came to jiu-jitsu uh, he's five years younger than me i think so i was already a blue belt and by that time <clears throat> uh, my school was called Seoul jiu-jitsu which means south jiu-jitsu right because mm. it was from it was not from south but was in South Brazil, so they put this name. And that at some point they tried to 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 uh, join forces with uh, some other school that from Ricardo Murgo, uh, which is a coro belt nowadays. By the time he was a black belt, and then they put his name. Uh, they started calling that uh, Union Jiu Jitsu because it was the union of two teams, right? But for me, it was still Su Jiu Jitsu. For me, never changed the name, especially because we had this uh, compet internal competition, you know, in the school that uh, every time we had to do the uh, qualifiers for any tournament, uh, will be our school against uh, Ricardo Morgel school. Okay. So, so there was a kind of a yeah. rivalry inside the school. So yeah. I never really felt like. Uh, Union or Ricardo Murgo school or for me it was just like training somewhere else with my yeah. uh, friends and then some other guys right mm -hmm. and uh, and but that was just for a while they they split up after a while and then they start calling that Su Jiu Jitsu again and then Ricardo Murgo went his own way and then Pedro came during this time when we were called uh, Union Jiu Jitsu I was a blue belt, just about to get my purple belt. I was 
19, I was like, uh, like Pedro, like uh, saying I was one of the pit bulls, you know, I was one of the main competitors there. And he was just like a small kid. <laughs> right. So he was like yeah. 14. Yeah, yeah. You know, by the time, and Professor Rodolfo as well, they were like just two young kids. Uh, did they start at the same time? Did they? Yeah, they did, yeah. So I was just like older and, and, and more experienced than them. So they used to look up to me, right? Mm. <laughs> they wanted to compete as well and stuff. But yeah, we trained together and we also had uh, some friends in common. So one of my neighbors uh, was a really good friend of him because well, they were two brothers. One was my age, Daniel, and then the other one, Patrick, was like four or five years younger than me. Ah, right. And then he happened to be Pedro's, yeah, yeah. in Pedro's like group, you know, like school or whatever. So we ended up like, you know, meeting uh, uh, every now and then, just hanging around together, mm-hmm. going to, to the beach. Or, so we always kept in touch. Mm-hmm. Even he, he was uh, younger than me. Yeah. yeah. And was Pedro a good student as a white belt? <laughs> uh, I can't tell you that because I can't remember. So long ago. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. long ago. I don't really remember. <laughs> I uh, wouldn't be asking him at some point, oh, was Felipe a good, good purple belt coach? <laughs> <laughs> I remember I enjoyed helping. So even when I was a white belt, so I used to, my professor used to ask me to help with the new students. Uh, so when I got my blue belt, they offered me to, to run the lunch, lunch classes. So I've been teaching since, since then, since mm-hmm. I was a blue belt, because then I would need to, to pay uh, for, the, for the gym, right? So right. that was just an exchange. So then since then, that was like 1996, maybe, or seven. And then I've been teaching since, since then, yeah. And obviously started out in like 90, 95-ish and since then jiu-jitsu's kind of just exploded all over the world and stuff. What was it like being like a young man and watching all that kind of happen from, you know, from Port Allegri and then seeing it all yeah, over the world? Uh, it's, uh, it's very surprising because I never thought that uh, it would happen and I had no idea how big it will become. And even when I went to London, Jiu-Jitsu was getting big, but I still didn't have the idea of how big it was getting or how big it was going to get because we didn't even have internet by the time. Kind of had internet, but it was just starting. Like, yeah, it wasn't I, like high speed. And that, yeah, and I, yeah I think my dad had internet at his house. My mom didn't have. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was the dialing connection, yeah. you know, like with the phone and noise connection <laughs> and everything. Uh, but then I had an idea that maybe I could teach uh, uh, somewhere else. And then my sister was uh, went to London for she was there for a year already. And then my mom said, "I do want to go to London. We're going to visit your sister." And I remember I wasn't really worried about going to London and anything. Never crossed my mind. It was just like I was a uh, twenty years old young man mm-hmm. just thinking about jiu-jitsu and party and then but then when she said that i was like oh, maybe i'd like to know Lana, you know maybe i'll like to leave somewhere else for a while for six months at least 
Then I had to sell my car and everything to get money. Ended up crashing my car, as I said before. <laughs> But your teeth were okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> so my ex-girlfriend lent me the money to go to London because I couldn't sell the car, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I sold it for the, how do you call it, the wreckage? Yeah, uh, yeah, I get you. How do you call that? Um, scrap. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I get like a, I got like, I don't know, like the car was worth uh, $6,000. Brazilian highs, and then I sold it for thousands. wasn't enough to go traveling, so my ex-girlfriend went then lent me some money. Uh, I went to London with the idea that I might be able to teach there, but it just wasn't big in London. There was only one alliance school there, mm. and then you had to rent the place out and stuff, so I didn't have that much money. I went to London with... Uh, Uh, 300 pounds. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That was all I had. Probably last year, like at least two, three days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was insane. Because I remember the immigration officer asking me like, <clears throat> okay, how much money do you have? And I opened my wallet and I got like 300, I think it was 350 maybe or something. Right? And she was like, okay, do you have a, a credit card? I'm like, yeah, I do. I didn't. I had a debit card, like a Visa Electron was oh, called, yeah. yeah. And then I showed her and she was like, okay. <laughs> But I just had like, that, that was all the money I had, you know. So I went to my, my, my friend's house there with my sister first for one week and then I moved to my friend's house and I was sharing a single room with another friend <laughs> I couldn't afford. But I got a job like uh, with my sister as a glass collector. Oh uh, yeah, and like a bar. Yeah, and that was enough to start, you know, and pay the mm. music. I couldn't speak English, so that was the the start there. What was it like going to England and not being able to speak English? Like that was that was a big challenge. Yeah, you know, uh, I never got that uh, feeling that I couldn't do it. I was never scared mm. of trying. I was just like. Were people, did you find people were patient with you, not being able to speak English so much? Yeah, or? yeah. Most of the times, mm. yeah. They, 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 they were, yeah. I was studying a lot. I think in six months, I was comfortable with English. Right. But I paid the school, I had a student visa and everything. But there was hard to go to the school and then work as well. Also, there was loads of... Uh, uh, Japanese people uh, in my uh, in my class, so you know it's much harder for them because they have to, you know, it's a it's not got any common kind nothing of nothing in yeah. common. So the class would go really slow, and I didn't have much patience to, to go mm. for the classes. But I had my book and my dictionary, and I would take it everywhere with me. So everywhere I'll go, if I had to go to work or some friend's house, got a train, got a bus, I was always studying, 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 studying. Because I like talking to people and meeting new people, but I, I couldn't talk to them. So that was my motivation, right? Mm. So I just wanted to learn it fast and uh, to, to be able to talk to people. And every, every opportunity I had to talk to some native speaker, I would. So I got a job in this uh, place called Home House in London, like a fancy place. And I remember there was the Brazilian department, there was the private parties, loads of Brazilians there. We used to work on the, <clears throat> in the private parties there. 
and uh, and then as soon as we finished uh, our shift, we would go like most of the guys or all of the guys would go straight home, right? And there was this uh, security guy. Yeah, he would stay the whole night, and I would spend hours just talking to him. I would get home really late, but just for the sake of practicing and talking, yeah. and, you know. So I learned English much faster than all the other ones because I put some more yeah. uh, effort on that. Then mm-hmm. uh, usually people do. People get lazy, you know. But so I just experienced that for six months, and then after six months, I was just like doing well, right? Enough to communicate. So, but people were very patient. That's nice yeah. to hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, did you manage to find any jiu-jitsu in London at the mm. time? Uh, there was just this place uh, in Marbolach, uh, Seymour's place was the name of the the complex, and there was this guy Roger Brooklyn teaching jiu-jitsu there. So I used to go there every now and then just to to, to train a little bit. I couldn't be really consistent because I kept moving around London. Mm. I lived all around the city, and uh, I changed jobs every time. I was, I was always looking for a better job, so I kept changing jobs every time. Sometimes uh, I had to... Uh, it must have been quite rare for a, a purple belt to be around. Uh, no, but then time. by the time I went to yeah. London, I was a brown belt. Oh, you're already a brown yeah. belt. So it's even rarer for a brown belt to be around yeah. as well. So yeah. They're... There was one brown belt there, another Brazilian one. That was the only one in the school. Right, right. yeah. But Roger Brooklyn was a black belt mm. from Rio, like, big guy. But I think I just started training again after two years. Because once I got to London, I think my first two years, I, <clears throat> I keep saying it was like, uh, uh, I took holidays from my life. It means like I wasn't worried about anything else. I was just working to make money, travel and party mm. you know, for my first two years in London. So I, I think I didn't even train jiu-jitsu by the time. I was always teaching my flatmates though. Uh, yeah, I kept doing mm. that. Used to uh, get all the mattresses uh, to the lounge and that was in every house I lived. I used to do that. I used to convince people to train with me. I could teach them. So I think everyone I lived, they learned a bit of jiu-jitsu, <laughs> you know, Italians, Croatians, some Brazilians, some uh, Scottish, like people from everywhere. I was just always like yeah. showing them some moves and stuff. When you first arrived in England, was there anything that really kind of took you surprise? Like, oh, that's really strange. Or, oh, I didn't expect that. Uh, I think just the the variety of uh, of people from everywhere. Mm. That was amazing. I was like, I was amazed by that. Did, I think I didn't expect it because I, I, I went to London. I, I don't know what I was expecting, you know. I never really thought about, oh, I really want to go to London. It was just when my mom said, I do want to go to London, sell your car and we go. Uh, she ended up going before me. I went like six months later. But I remember that thing and also like uh, how how you can see the history, you know, in everywhere you go, you know? Because mm-hmm. Brazil is pretty young, if you compare. Brazil is like, Brazil is 500 years. 
and how old is England? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I remember the first two days in London, I could barely speak. I was just uh, absorbing everything. I was mm. like, oh, that's great. I consider London the capital of the world. Some people consider New York. I don't really, I think London is, mm. it's like everything happens there first and you close to Europe, you travel one hour, you're in a different country, different language, different cu culture. So each direction you go, you're gonna find a different culture, different language, different everything, you know, so. Yeah, and you initially planned to stay six months, but then ended up staying a few years, was it? Yeah. What happened there? Oh, I remember, there's <laughs> too many things to do in <laughs> I remember uh, I called my mom. I used to call my mom every three months, right? Because there was no internet. <laughs> oh, right. That's not very nice. Well, in the beginning, I was calling her very frequently, but she was complaining about the phone bill. <laughs> that was really expensive. Uh, so I was just calling her like every three months. And I used to do the reverse charge call. <laughs> uh, just after a while, they came up with that uh, phone cards, you know, that you pay like five pounds and then you could uh, do international calls for, I don't know, one hour, 30 right, minutes or okay, something. Cool. Yeah. But, um, what was the question? I just. <laughs> it was, um, you ended up staying in England longer than you expected. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I remember uh, calling my mom and saying like, mom, I have something to tell you. That was close to the six months, right? And I was, and she was like, what, what's happening? Yeah, you know what, uh, uh, to do everything I want to do here, I'll, I'll have to stay a bit longer, probably like two, two and a half years. And I said, I have some bad news. And then she said, and do you think that's bad news? <laughs> she was always like supporting me to stay there. You know? <laughs> yeah, no. Do you think it's bad news? That, that's great. I'm like, huh. Okay, all right, fine. <laughs> and your, your sister was there still? You had, you had her to kind of kick around with if you wanted, if you were missing the family and stuff? Yeah, my sister, I think she lived in London for one and a half year, two years, mm. something like that. Uh, so I think when I was in London, I stayed with my sister for six months and then she went back to Brazil and then she moved to Canada. Okay. to Vancouver. Her boyfriend by the time was Canadian. So she tried to live in, in Canada, but then she stayed there for a year and then she started missing my mom and friends and family and then she went back to Brazil after mm -hmm. that. And then I ended up staying in London until 2007, I think. Um, did you and your sister get help? What's the age difference there? Between you and your sister? Ah, oh, one year. Okay, yeah. did you guys get along quite well growing yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were kind of uh, looking after her as well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah great, yeah. that's cool. Did you have any, uh, any other siblings? Or just no, no, that, that's just Ah, okay, yeah. cool. Do you still get along quite well? Yeah, yeah, we do. That's good. But she's back in Brazil? Yeah, she's back in Brazil now. Nice. She works for Dell Computers. Oh, yeah. Ma marketing. Ah, oh, wow. In yeah. Porto Alegre? Or? Yeah, Porto Alegre. Ah, cool. So, mm. What's the next step? You leave London and what's the plan? Well, I was living in London and I was already planning to stay there. <clears throat> and then 
Uh, that's the sad part of the story, right? I had to come back uh, to Porto Alegre because my dad found out he had cancer. Uh, and as soon as I found out, uh, I decided to go back straight away. He lived in Rio by the time. Uh, I went to Rio to visit him. He was in the beginning of the chemotherapy and everything. He was doing well. Uh, I went back to Porto Alegre because I couldn't stay with him in Rio, right? Stayed there for, I don't know, six months, one year, I can't remember really. And then, but it was hard for me to go and see him because uh, if you work in Brazil to travel around the country, it's really expensive. Mm. So it was easier to visit him if I lived in London than if I lived in Brazil. Really? Yeah. Because of like the, the amount you get paid and the, the flight costs. Yeah, that's it. Right. Because I remember to, uh, when I decided to go to Brazil, I did some extra job for one week and I got the money to go to Brazil, you know. All right. Uh, so I moved back to London and then I stayed there for six months. But then my dad decided to move to Porto Alegre. Because he was getting worse, you know, and so he decided to get closer to the family and everything. So once he moved back to Porto Alegre, then I came back again to to Porto Alegre, and then he was fighting uh, cancer for three three and a half years. That's quite a long time, and till that he passed away in two thousand. 2010, I think, yeah. Mm. And this is why I went back. So, you know, because she was sick, I was there. So then you started to create roots again in the city. You know, I went back to uni. I, I did a, uh, international uh, commerce. So I did another uh, uni course. And then I got another job and then girlfriend and then I was just staying there, but I was never really happy in Brazil. You know, like mm. after living in London, it was a whole different world. It's just like going back to a, it's like a bird going back to a small cage after being freed. <laughs> right. So, did you pick up jiu-jitsu again when, like, normal classes when you went back to? Brazil yeah, as, well? as soon as I went back to Brazil, I did. But I had some serious injuries, some knee injuries. But that's from that was from soccer. Mm. I used to play soccer a lot. So my meniscus suffered. I had three meniscus surgeries. Oof. So, you know, I was like training for a bit and then surgery and then training for six months and surgery. Uh, so I spent some more time in the brown belt. So I think I stayed in total 12 years in the brown belt. Wow. You know, until I decided to start really slow to try to get my black belt. Uh, the belt was never a, a, a goal for me, any other belt. I was just like training and enjoying the, the journey, as we say. Uh, never really worried about belts. But by this time I used the black belt as a goal because I was too long in a brown belt. And I was trying to come back to jiu-jitsu and I was getting these injuries every time. So there was just one way to, you know, get discipline and aim for something so I would play less less uh, football and do more jiu-jitsu and start slowly with like lighter guys and stuff until my my knees get better 
and then I managed to to go all the way to the to the black belt. Mm. Out of all of the belt promotions you've had, what was <laughs> the most memorable or your favorite? I think it was the black belt. Uh, I don't really even remember my other belts because it was just happening. Uh, I don't even remember the ceremonies and stuff. I think my blue belt I got after winning some competitions in the white belt. I was I kept winning and I think someday they just gave me the blue belts. Uh, but the black belt was uh, was the most memorable one because you know it's like uh, you played video games, right? So you play you 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 finish the game, right? You go through everything and then you finish. And then what's next? So what they do is they make you play the game again in a harder mode. Yeah. And that was the feeling. The feeling was just like I was restarting everything, you know. Uh, and I never had that feeling before. But I felt the black belt as a... I felt the weight of the black belt. So I started studying much more, you know, like... Uh, before I was just like training, you study, you know, but you're just like a student. But now... I was always uh, coaching, but now because I had a black belt, I wanted to do it properly. So I started studying much more, and then that was a whole new world for me. Mm. So that was like a, a turning turning point, right? In jiu-jitsu. So yeah, the black belt is definitely the most memorable one. So when you got your black belt, was there anything? <clears throat> well, I guess no. Since just like just nowadays, with your more experience and stuff, because you probably like been like good six or more years now since yes, you got set seven years yeah um what would you wish you kind of sorry, sorry. if you knew you could, and you could go back and um if you could go go back and uh give yourself some advice to try and progress faster through jiu-jitsu uh what advice would you give uh can you oh yeah we'll just pause this one second yeah Okay, we're back. So, just wondering if you had any advice for, um, you know, your lower belt self. Like, if you could have said, "Oh, you would have had an easier path," or you could have progressed quick, quicker here, or you didn't really understand this properly, that kind of thing. Well, I think the the main thing that hold people back is the ego. Uh, if you can let go of your ego, you know. Uh, early your progress will be much quicker because you learn more if you don't care about winning if you just care about learning and enjoying the role and you know trying to learn with each role you learn much more but that's the hardest part you know uh, the body skills are the easiest part the harder part is changing your mindset mm-hmm. So instead of coming here every day, I, I need to win, I need to win, and then you use all the strength you have, and then you end up doing the same thing that you do every time. So you progress go really slow. <clears throat> but if you can control it and enjoy the trainings, and like let's say you work a, a white belt or blue belt, really strong, and then you're rolling with some... Uh, purple brown belt, sometimes much older than you, 
instead of trying to smash them because you're stronger and you want to prove that you can submit a purple or brown belt, you know, if you can uh, learn with the rope, let them move, learn with your mistakes. That's the way you learn, right? People who have this mindset, they learn much faster than the other ones. Mm. So that's the, the main lesson, you know, forget about your ego and just try, try to learn, try to enjoy. Tapping is just part of the training, you know? Can you um, teach someone that to kind of like learn to try and nullify their ego a bit or does it have to be something they experience or is it innate, like they're born with it or what is it? You can, you can uh, train that, you can train them. You can uh, do some specific trainers when you, like, uh, you know, the one you have to, for example, play guard without using your hands. And then the other guy that's passing your guard, they, they can use their hands and their grips. So you're always gonna lose, mm. right? So you can do uh, these kind of trainings or just like, okay, you just need to defend and the person on top just have to submit. And then you're gonna get submitted. And then the more you get submitted, the more you get used to it. And you see that's not a big deal. Because you just learn, what are you learning that? What's the lesson? How to defend it, you know, how to defend yourself. To, to be offensive, you need to have a good defense. Nowadays, like all the younger <coughs> students and, and like lower belts, they, worried about like uh, doing burning bolos and all these kind of things. And many times they forget about the fundamentals and the defense and the escapes and everything. And that's why you have to focus in the beginning. It's cool to learn all the fancy moves, of course, I know I understand that, but you cannot uh, forget about the, the foundation of jiu-jitsu, right? Mm. So otherwise you just create bad habits. That's what happens. So it's hard, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah, some people are really stubborn. <laughs> we'll get back onto this, but I just want you to tell the kind of story of how you ended up from uh, Port Alegre or wherever it was you were before you got to Australia and how that happened. Well, uh, uh, as I said, uh, I was back in Port Alegre and I went back to uni. Uh, I did these international uh, commerce course. Uh, I worked for some international trade company. I had a restaurant. I studied, I did some MBA in business management again. So I was always studying, you know, trying to, to improve myself, getting different jobs, try different business. I had a gym also back in Brazil, not a jiu-jitsu gym, but just like a, you know, like a, with a weights and everything. Uh, then I had the restaurant, but I was always teaching jiu-jitsu. I kept teaching because I enjoyed it. I didn't get paid for that. Mm. I was just a volunteer. I just wanted to teach. It was my therapy, right? So I was training and, and also teaching. I would stop everything to go and teach my classes, even when I had the restaurants. And there was some crazy times, you know, how it's to, to run a restaurant. It's just like hard work, but I would stop everything. Okay, I'm going to teach the class. Doesn't matter what's happening. Everything stops and I'm gonna go. And um, my, I think my wife once asked me like, why you 
keep teaching for free, right? You have the restaurant, you know, you work enough hours and then you go there and you, and you, and you work for free. Why are you doing that? And I was like, first of all, because I love teaching, you know, like it, uh, uh, I love training, I love teaching. It's my therapy. And also it's my plan B. If everything goes wrong, I can still teach Jiu-Jitsu, right? Mm -hmm. And at some point she was already saying that uh, uh, why, that I should uh, uh, quit uh, working in the restaurant and just work with Jiu-Jitsu because uh, she had some friends that their husbands were teaching Jiu-Jitsu in the United States and Europe and Australia and they were leaving from that and she knew I loved it and I should try and blah blah. So she kept telling me that. And you know, usually your wife tells you the opposite. You know? <laughs> she tells you, well, stop training, it's bad for you and everything. But then my wife was just like pushing me to, to just walk in the jiu-jitsu, right? I'm like, okay, that, that's weird, but maybe she's right. So then I left the restaurant and uh, uh, in the next month, I was already working for the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation because my professor happens to be the president. So they were running all these UAEJJF uh, competitions around the country. And he had invited me before, but because I had the restaurant, I didn't have time to, to go. But as soon as, as I was free, he was like, okay, so can you come and work with us now? I'm like, okay, sweet. So straight away, I started traveling around the country, uh, running the competitions and everything. Uh, and what, what did that involve? You have to set the competitions up and like... Yeah, and, set everything up, yeah. train the staff, you know, all wow. the logistics, how are we going to uh, do the... Uh, how we would set up the mats, how many areas, how many uh, uh, athletes we would have, mm. the weigh-ins. So we had to do all the logistics, we had to s set it up, we had to organize everything all the, the venue and everything. Then had to get the staff, train the staff. And then during the competition, we would run the competition. So we would be the supervisor, we had our teams and we would make the competition run smoothly, right? And I remember my, my first competition was the Grand Slam in Rio, which is the biggest one. I was like, oh, straight there, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a fun one because every competition, I would do something different, some in a different uh, uh, area of the competition. So the first one, they put me in the broadcasting truck with a broadcasting team, and I would be there watching the fights and telling them what was good to 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 show on the replay because they couldn't uh, understand anything, you know, yeah. like they didn't do jujitsu, so they're like, "What's happening here?" <laughs> so I had like three or four guys with me and then watching like all that fights and like okay this one is good yeah he's doing this get this one so they would get that beat and and show on the replay yeah so i spent some time doing that that was really fun some other competitions i would run the 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 whole uh rackets some other competition just the 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 podium area and you know so after a few months, so after a year, they invited us to go to Abu Dhabi 
because apparently our team was the best in the world right. running the competitions. So the big boss there, which is uh, Ricardo Valerio, he's the big guy, big boss in, in uh, Abu Dhabi, right? And then he invited us to help with the uh, World Pro. So then we went there and then I got to know this uh, program they have in uh, UAE where they teach Jiu-Jitsu in every single school for the kids. Mm. So I remember that 10 years before that, this guy uh, from FBJJF, uh, which is my friend Elias, he invited me to go to Abu Dhabi, but I had just came back uh, from London. They were sending the 10 first uh, black belts to, to Abu Dhabi to start the project. And then by the time I got there, I think that was 10 years later, uh, they had already 800 uh, wow. black belts. There were 700, something like that, a huge yeah. number. Yeah. Crazy. I didn't go because again, my dad had cancer, had just came back from yeah. London. So I was like, ah, Abu Dhabi, no. I did an interview there you know, to work on this program. So they have jiu-jitsu in every single school and they have jiu-jitsu in the uh, army uh, bases mm. as well, right? But I passed the interview. The money wasn't that good for my age, I would say. Uh, money was good for someone younger. But for me, it was like, mm, maybe not. And then they sent me to Los Angeles. Again, because they speak English, they started sending me like to some other countries. Right. And then, and they sent me to China as well. And then every, every place I went to, they like, oh, you speak English, you're a black belt. How would you like to teach here? So mm -hmm. I started seeing like how jiu-jitsu was big around the world. So I started having the, the like the, the real idea of, of jiu-jitsu, right? I'm like, okay, maybe I can go somewhere else and, and teach jiu-jitsu. So when I went to Los Angeles, I, I took my wife with me because that's one of the places we, we would like to live, you know, California by yeah. the beach, teaching jiu-jitsu there. So we went there, she loved it. She was like, oh, let's stay here. That's where we're gonna be. And I was telling her like, okay, I also enjoyed it and like pretty cool, but something's telling me to try Australia. I, I don't know why, but just some feeling, you know? So then going back to the friend of mine, my neighbor, friend in common oh, with yeah. uh, Pedro, he's living in San Diego now. Uh, so he went there to see me there. He went to Los Angeles to see me. Uh, nice. And there's another guy, Brent. He lives there as well from the same group of friends. And they're like, so Felipe, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay here or what are you going to do? And, um, and I'm like, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. But I'm thinking about uh, Australia. I don't know why. And they're like, yeah, you know, Pedro's there. So if you want to go there, talk to Pedro, blah, blah. And I was... Yeah, I might try that. So I kept uh, Los Angeles like, like the sleeve, you know, like to, yeah. as an option. Uh, went back to Brazil, but because I had lost my dad, I was a bit concerned about uh, leaving my mom. My mom is 70 now, 70-ish, 69, I think. So I was always hesitating. And then, and then, uh, my wife was getting a bit upset with me because 
every time we kind of decide, okay, maybe we can do it. We, I would go like, yeah, but I don't know if I can do it. And I'll leave my mom here. And then she was upset with me. She went like, uh, okay, don't talk to me about uh, going to another country anymore. I don't want to know. Like, unless we tell me like, for sure we go somewhere. Otherwise, you know, I stop playing with my feelings, you know? <laughs> and then uh, in the meantime, I did this uh, 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 police uh, assessment to work for the police in Brazil. It's a, it's a big, uh, it's a big, uh, is that how you call assessment, right? Like a, yeah. a test, right? Yeah. A written test and then physical and then loads of things. Really hard to pass. There was like 25,000 people for 400 uh, uh, places, right? I passed. I didn't expect that. Though. <laughs> <laughs> but then I did, right? I studied like two months and I'm like, oh my God, I passed. And I'm like, oh. And I was happy and my wife wasn't really happy because it's really dangerous for the police. Right. So I passed the hardest part, which was the, all the law and Portuguese and informatic and, and uh, mathematic uh, questions. And I made a mistake when I was uh, uh, rewriting my, my, how you say, the, like the dissertation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have to write the scratch and then you, you know, you rewrite it again. Mm -hmm. And then I made some like silly mistakes because I was in a hurry. And I didn't pass in the second part. And I was like, I believe that those are like really silly mistakes just because I was in a rush. So I was really frustrated because I had passed in the hardest part that most of people don't pass. Mm -hmm. And then in the easy <laughs> part, I'm like, I didn't pass. So I got really upset. So I turned to my wife and I said, do you know what? We live in the country. And she was like, I told you. <laughs> Just talk to me about this if you're serious. I'm like, I'm serious. We're going to do that. Straight away, I messaged Pedro. And that was in May, uh, 1919, no, 20, what year? That was two years ago, right? 2017. 2017, yeah, May to 2017. And then when I spoke to Pedro, like, Pedro, how is Australia? How is the market? I'm thinking about going there, opening my own school. And he was, he was like, yeah, this is the right time to come and blah, blah. I can help you and these and these and that. Uh, so if you really want to come, I'm, I'm coming to Brazil in June. So that'll be like next month. I'm like, really? Yeah, so then we can talk. So that was lucky because he was coming to yeah. Brazil like in the next month. I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> and his, his parents live really close to my, and really close, I mean like right on the corner from my, oh, really? my like mom's same house. Street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, same street. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, he came to train with me and then we were talking about uh, uh, coming here and teach. And then he was like, okay, if you decide to come, I, I help you out until you open your own gym. You can teach in my, my school and everything. And then I was like, sweet. So then I decided to come. Uh, we organized everything. Uh, we applied for the visa. We didn't tell anyone, anyone apart from my mom, of course, didn't want to. Didn't want her to have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we got the visa approved in 
end of September. So in one month, we told everyone, we sold the entire house, everything to our friends. And then by 1st of November, we arrived in, in, in Australia. So that was how I ended up here. Yeah. So wow. I just decided to change my life, you know, and, and try to do something I like mm -hmm. instead of trying to chase the money. That's what we do. What did it feel like when you had like so much? I know like running a restaurant must be like incredibly stressful and like lots of yeah. lots and lots of hours and the same with the gym, I imagine as well. What, what did it feel like when you dropped that kind of stuff and then just were like laser focused on the jiu-jitsu? Oh, much more pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the restaurant is uh, the hardest, uh, one of the hardest uh, jobs you can have, right? Running a restaurant is really stressful dealing with uh, suppliers and uh, staff and everything. And even if you like doing that, and I kind of liked doing that, it's, it's just not like doing jiu-jitsu. Uh, it's even hard to consider jiu-jitsu, uh, teaching jiu-jitsu a job, no? Mm. It's more like, I wake up every day, come here, it's my pleasure to come, you know? I don't get in a bad mood and anything, because I'm just coming to, to do what I like, so yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's something else, you know? It's just uh, it's a big change in my life. Once I decided to do what I like, and my friends when I was leaving the country, they, they, used, they were telling me like, man, you took a while to realize that. <laughs> <laughs> they all knew already. Yeah, they, they all knew. <laughs> I don't know why it took so long. <laughs> <laughs> so you're hoping to open up your own, own school at some point? Yeah, yeah that, that's the plan since the beginning. Yeah, yeah. and you think, you think it'll be here in Sydney or you think it'll be just somewhere uh, else? Yeah, the idea is it's, it's to be to open a school here in Sydney, but I still don't know the other cities. I still want to go to Queensland and check it out. I'm going to Melbourne now for New Year's, uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't go to Melbourne. No? I want to live close to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's one of my goals in life. I want to work with uh, Jiu Jitsu and I want to live close to the beach. Mm. That's the main things for me now. You know, quality of life and everything. How was it like? Because you weren't uh, at Gracie Baja back in Brazil, were you? It's, uh, but changing to a Gracie Baja school, what was that transition like? Was it a difficult transition for you? Oh, yeah. And what was the representation of Gracie Baja like outside of Gracie Baja? Because obviously I've only ever been to kind of a student of Gracie Baja. Yeah, schools. but you know what? Uh, in Porto Alegre, Gracie Baja is not big mm. because we have a really, really uh, different market. Uh, uh, from the rest of the country. So everything that works in the rest of the country doesn't work in South Brazil. So they, South Brazil is like a, a good business case study. So loads of big brands, they try South, the South of Brazil first. If it works, they know it's gonna work in the rest of the country. Okay. Because we are very, how would you say that, territorial? Mm. Do you like, know what I mean? Like, don't want like, new things kind of yeah, popping up. That's you want to like, yeah. have your own things. So the biggest school there was Mike's School because it was the first one. Mm. It had South in the name and these kind of things. So we have only one Gracie Baha school there. It's not really old, you know. 
So I never had like a a, a good idea of uh, what was Gracie Baja until I started working with uh, with the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. Then I started traveling around the country. Right. Yeah. And then I started meeting loads of people from Gracie Baja, but. I really enjoyed the structure, and I remember when I went to Curitiba uh, for, and I was working with uh, Pimpoli, one of the Gracie Baja owners, and I went to his school and everything, and I, I liked all the, the methodology and everything, and he showed me the curriculum. So I started basing my, my classes on kind of the curriculum, you know, not, not exactly the Gracie Baja curriculum, but like the idea of one week teaching uh, side control the other week, uh, teaching uh, guard and doing specific training. So I was already using that because of Gracie Baja, because you know. Mm. And so I like the whole structure and idea of that. It's different coming from another team, of course. You feel that, like, oh, you know, I, I've trained with Maris Pei for so many years and now uh, I have to follow. I wouldn't say like different rules, but you know, like Grisba has its own uh, rules. But it's different, but you get used to that, you know. They're getting more and more flexible also about uh, the way you can teach and stuff, as long as you follow the main uh, curriculum and stuff. So I'm enjoying it, I'm having a good time, you know. Mm. So you think if you ever opened up a school it would, would you think you'd stick with Gracie Baja or do you think you'd try, go back to... Yeah, and I think, I think that would be Gracie Baja. Gracie yeah. Baja has been helping me uh, a lot. And even my, Maris Pehi, you know, my professor, my master, uh, he told me like, uh, if you have to open another school, man, the best school for you to open is the Gracie Baja, you know? Oh. The name, the structure, they give you, yeah. you know, everything. So Especially even, with the kind of support you'd have if yeah. you were with with there being quite quite a few Gracie Baja clubs already. In, That's it. Have a good around. network and you know, lots of uh, positive points mm. with it. So uh, yeah. Well, we should probably start wrapping this up. But I didn't get to speak to you about as much jujitsu as uh, I would have liked to. So maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, yeah, we can. What about? Um, if you could give like a message or some advice to just in general the students of Gracie Baja Bondi, uh, what what would you tell them? What what would you like them to know? Uh, I would tell them to to try to get more into jujitsu. You know, try to think about jujitsu not only in the school. Try to always like do some research, uh, study a bit at home, uh, get to know a bit more about like the culture and the history of, of jiu-jitsu and again try to to overcome your ego <laughs> and then your jiu-jitsu will get better much quicker awesome okay cheers professor Felipe okay now we're still us us